0: Life is hard. If you're doing what needs to be done, making progress, then you're working hard. If you're on the wrong path or making bad decisions, then you're hard on yourself. And the world is hard on you. If this world is a simulation, did the engineers have to make it this hard? Just a note of constructive feedback to our overlords for whatever that's worth. They can take it or leave it. It is apparent that we have access to certain levers within the causal structure of the brain. In this sense it is necessary to distinguish between myself, the conscious mind, and the physical workings of the brain. I am not the same thing as the brain, just as I am not the same thing as my hands. These bio-machines are involved with me and me with them. The scientific problem of consciousness is to establish the relationship between the mind and the man. We've narrowed down the proximity of this relationship to no less than some portion of the integrated thalamus and cerebral cortex. What I call the thalamocortex, cortex. But even if this were a perfect narrowing, a localization in space and time which draws precise borders between that which is necessary and sufficient for consciousness and that which is not, we have still not established the basis for the relationship. There are some, it seems, for whom the problem is solved once the neural correlation is complete, and I can see on the one hand why this might be satisfactory. Suppose, for example, you wanted a complete explanation for why the eight ball dropped into the corner pocket you might be satisfied to have described this sequence of events in Newtonian terms. But a thoughtful inquisitor supplied with such an explanation might yet ask the question why? And this is not necessarily as naive as it sounds. There is in fact more to the story once we take in hand the deeper facts about matter and space. The story can be more precisely understood in terms of electromagnetic and gravitational forces. So long as there is a more fundamental structure to be evaluated, the Newtonian explanation is incomplete. Returning to the precise neural correlates of consciousness, then, we are offered something akin to a Newtonian description. It is in recognition of this that I have attempted a deeper, more fundamental analysis of the problem of consciousness, one which takes shape in the form of electromagnetic force and the integration of causality. With this in mind, let us examine the observation of apparent mental levers which avail themselves to the conscious human being. By this I mean things that we can willfully alter. In the conscious experience, and evidently in the world of things, what daylight can be found between perception and action? Language muddles this up a fair amount, so I'll try to seek clarity as I go into this. We use action terms, verbs, in our language quite liberally. For example, if I lift my hand or point my finger, there is something taking effect in physical reality. But if I see or hear, have I done anything at all in the reality? To see and to point are not descriptions of parallel ideas. In one case, something is happening to you, and in the, the other, something is happening by you. Of course, to look or to listen implies an action, or at least a deliberate attitude on your part. To think, to believe, what of these operations? I am not at all interested in the sophistry of word games. I only want to define for myself a set of conceptual distinctions along clear lines, to dispense with the fog of linguistics and get to the real objects of inquiry. So let's start with perception. I see and hear and think, but what I really mean is that there are sights, sounds, and thoughts. Those are the sense data, the facts of the phenomenological case. I have to avoid smuggling in additional assumptions. There are sights, sounds, and thoughts. These compose what I mean by consciousness. There are feelings, too, whatever those are. All of these, whether simple or complex, spatially representative or whatever else, are matters of subjective fact an experience is composed of such things. Even emotion should be understood as perceptual. The following is from Matthew Lieberman's article Boo! The Consciousness Problem in Emotion. Quote, Frida identified emotion as a mode of seeing, and vision is a paradigmatic pre-reflective process with countless simultaneous automatic processes giving rise to not yet reflected upon experience. If emotion is like seeing, then it follows that we ought to think of appraisal processes as analogous to perceptual processes. Processing of valence, arousal, controllability, and agency should be thought about and studied the same way that we study motion, color, texture, and shape processing. In both cases, these processes are literally the lenses through which we see the world. Dimensions like agency or motion can be reflected upon, but typically are not and do not need to be in order to contribute to the experience of emotional or visual seeing, respectively. And when people do reflect on these things, the contents of these reflections are not necessarily isomorphic with the pre-reflective originals, and can even alter them. We have seen in a number of affect labeling studies that when people put negative feelings into words, ongoing affect is dampened in subjective physiological behavior and neural channels of emotion. Additionally, once we move to thinking of emotional experience as a kind of seeing, the causal question drops out. We do not really talk about what causes seeing. We do not say that motion, color, and shape processing cause seeing. Rather they are the component processes of seeing. Similarly, appraisals are component processes of emotional seeing, rather than a cause per se." The preceding passage makes the case that emotions are perceived just like vision is perceived. I think this is right. The difference with emotions is that they are not at all spatially represented. We can't place them. Thoughts are like this, but thoughts refer to things, including spatial and temporal relationships between things. If we add up as sensational facts the sights and sounds and emotions and thoughts, we acquire a landscape. But we have not exhausted the facts. There are the given sense data, and then there is something further. There are changes that we seem to be able to make. These are the levers of which I spoke. Apparently, I can move these limbs, these eyes. This is self-evident. In doing so, I alter my conscious experience and presumably the world around me. This is how I make sound and move objects around the environment. That motor neurons in the brain carry out the causation of these movements is well known, but it is known to you and me that they generally do so with our permission or at our command. Maybe this is an illusion, you protest. Well, let's see. Suppose you are doing some routine motor task, like turning the page of the book you are reading. Your fingers reach the top corner of the page, isolate it from the pages behind it, and fold it leftward to join those others which you have already consumed. It's funny as an aside to notice as I just have that I don't even have instant knowledge in mind of which fingers I use to do this task, even though I read my fair share of books. I just picked up a paperback now and realized that I actually tend to do this from the bottom corner of the page. I place my index finger on the face of the current page and flick the sheet up with my thumb. I'll be damned. Anyway, here is a routine that I carry out consciously, at least in the sense that I desire the leaf to be turned and I will my fingers to turn it. How is this procedure accomplished? I don't know. I have a sense of the objective facts with respect to the motor cortex and the basal ganglia and the muscles in the forearm receiving signals by way of spinal nerves. In addition to that, I have a sense of the subjective facts. The feeling of moving the fingers willfully. But the explanatory gap between the objective and the subjective is a total mystery. Nothing finger-shaped is moving finger-like in the motor cortex. Action potentials are being generated and passed along to their neural colleagues. So in a literal sense, something like the generation of action potentials, some physical causal process is identical to a mental process of will. This thing, whatever it is to which I have access without knowing its identity, that is what I mean by a lever. Oh yes, I intended to contest the claim that this lever is an illusion. According to such an idea, my sense of desire to turn the page, capacity to manipulate the fingers, feel for the pages upon fingertips, and satisfaction at having accomplished the little task is all epiphenomenal. I needn't have any such sensations. The actions of the human body and brain are quite independent of my perceptions, much less my preferences. I am an epiphenomenal spectator. Let's consider this from a realist perspective. There is a human animal which occupies space and has organs and limbs and whatnot, arranged as we understand the anatomy. There really are five fingers on each of the two hands operating on real materials in a real world. In this case, the human animal is manipulating what we would recognize as a book. The book is a collection of pages, with symbols printed on it in neat rows, which the human animal's brain is able to take in as visual input. Let's suppose that this book is on the topic of identifying edible mushrooms. It has color pictures, which the human animal's brain can recognize and use for its purposes. The human animal has, by prolonged means of evolution, come to exhibit intelligent behavioral algorithms. Input signals arrive at the brain from receptor cells, undergo complex processing upon neural networks, and accordingly, output signals directly or indirectly operate muscle cells. The thalamocortical system is a very sophisticated algorithmic machine, one which mediates the exchange between inputs and outputs. For mysterious but presumably inevitable reasons, the workings of this machine produce a unified subjective waste product. Interestingly, the subjective waste product consists in a mind that witnesses much of what is happening with the animal. This makes no difference whatsoever to what the animal does or why. The human animal does what it does as a straightforward though complex process of algorithmic cause and effect. It turns out, though, that the subjective waste product consists in a coherent picture of the animal's environment, a detailed sense of spatial and temporal relationships. The animal reading the book on mushrooms turns the page of the book precisely in accordance with the subjective desire to do so. The subjective waste product understands the words on the page, but of course the human animal is a machine and understands nothing. The subjective waste product sees the book and its color pictures and, having understood the symbols, can recognize the identity of mushroom specimens. The human animal recognizes nothing at all. It does not see, or hear, or have feelings or thoughts of any kind. The waste product has a thorough understanding of the situation, a person gaining education about fungi, holding a paperback in his hand and now closely inspecting a photograph of a particular specimen. The human animal is pointing its eyes for several long seconds at the page. This is quite handy, but it precisely agrees with the subjective waste product's current interest in the mushroom featured there. Just as the desire comes on, in the subjective waste products experience, to turn the page and move on, along with a sense of willingness to move the fingers in a manner intended to achieve that end, the fingers do move, exactly as hoped for, and the animal turns the eyes toward the symbols at the top of the next sheet. Mind you, according to such a view of consciousness, there really are hands and fingers and eyes and books with pictures of mushrooms. It's just a total accident of physical necessity that this is known and understood by the system's byproduct. When the human animal is walking a trail later on in the day, the subjective waste product becomes curious about a small gray object poking out from under some foliage. Thankfully, the animal walks over and points its eyes at the thing, which the waste product gleefully recognizes as a specimen of the mushroom from the photograph. The name and remembered characteristics of the species come into mind. The animal smiles, not because it is pleased, but because that is what the evolved algorithm prescribes. It is only the attendant mind, the epiphenomenal waste product, which enjoys the moment. The animal does not experience joy. It experiences nothing. Since we know that the organization of the thalamocortical system does not take the shape of its information, it's a miracle that the subjective waste product sees and feels and understands things just as they occur in the real world. After all, according to this view, it wouldn't matter whether it did or not. It could be often a totally irrelevant la-la land of subjective experience, like that of a man trapped in a pod in the Matrix. This is conceivable, of course, but it would require us to throw out absolutely everything we know. So I'm going to take the position that there really are causal levers available to the conscious minds of human beings. I should be careful, though, not to assume too much about the nature of these levers. For instance, I don't really know whether my will is a force that carries out action, or whether it's something more like a permission granting apparatus which could allow or veto something which is otherwise automatic. We may not be able to make much progress other than considering the characteristics of these levers, preliminarily. The first and most straightforward is voluntary movement. This includes any purposeful movement even though, as we have established, we don't have to be clear on which muscles are being moved and by what neural mechanism. So the act of speech is included. A second lever must be involved in the process of thinking. This is less straightforward. What after all is it to think? We cannot simply observe thoughts even when each subsequent thought builds upon the others and call that process thinking. If we do, then a passive perception, like watching a deer bound across a road from one side to the other, is an action on our part. That can't be right. There is an active process in what we call thinking, which must be distinguished as a phenomenon from the observation of thoughts. I said before that the act of speech is voluntary movement. Of course, there is something else going on with speech production, in the case that it is not simply the making of noise. There is a thinking out loud which is entailed in meaningful speech, which, after all, is the kind of speech we are discussing now. It may be that the lever we have access to which enables active thinking is something about attention. Consider the web of associations and concepts which branches off from any given thought. There are countless options for, say, responding to a statement someone has made. Perhaps if you've ever had the pleasure of a vigorous conversation, you will have noticed. If you're like me, then when your interlocutor has said something interesting, you have many different ideas which emerge into mind in nascent form and vie for your attention in that moment. To me, as a guy who is really interested in ideas, this is a moment of great excitement. But for the sake of illustration, let's consider a very banal example. A person Perhaps an eccentric stranger at a dinner party turns to you and says, elephants eat nothing but vegetation, and look at the size of them. Here, a web of potential branch points extends from the thesis with which you have been presented. I'll make an attempt to show that. To me, it's as if each of the objects in the sentence is a variable to be played with. Elephants, large terrestrial mammals of Africa and India. This branches to other animals. Large animals like whales spring to mind. It branches to other animals in Africa that might coexist with elephants, gazelles and cheetahs and hippos and so on. There are many more branches which shoot into mind off of that one noun, elephant. The next word eat specifies an action an elephant takes, so off of eat we get other things an elephant does like bathe and migrate and stomp around. We also get branches of thought off of the word eat to the kinds of things that are eaten, different foods come to mind, etc. Next, we get the idea, nothing but vegetation, which suggests suggests branches toward all kinds of different plants and their products, grasses, trees, fruit, bark, and roots, and so on. Plus, at the same time, we have the full sentence segment, elephants eat nothing but vegetation, which suggests the branch, what do elephants eat, what do other animals eat, and is there anything other than vegetation that elephants might eat, and so forth. You see, I haven't even gotten through the sentence, and for your sake as well as mine, I won't bother but there are at least tens of coherent responses I could immediately make to the person who has started the conversation. These responses each have the potential to direct the discussion down a separate path. How is the choice made? Does my mind have the power to determine that? It certainly feels that way. Thinking upon it now, I can imagine a number of implicit factors that would incentivize certain choices. There is the content of the statement itself and what it brings to mind. Some thoughts will be more interesting to me to explore than others. So that would be a major factor in my response. Then there is the cognitive context of what I have recently been reading or experiencing, which might cause me to think of the statement from a certain angle. Then there is a social context. Who is this person? What response might interest or amuse them? What would be appropriate to say? And so on. I might make a joke or a more serious response, depending on my mood and the social context. I submit that there is something here in the process I am trying to describe which is not strictly algorithmic. To be sure, the thoughts that appear when I hear this statement come of their own accord, like visual percepts. They just are. Moreover, the value judgments, the things which interest me or don't, are not under my control. So some thoughts will please or amuse me, others will seem dry and uncompelling. I'm apt to lean into those that I like. In the end, it's easy to imagine that this thinking process is largely deterministic. Where my will comes into the picture seems to be in the direction of my attention to some particular branch of thought, and then my desire to express it as a response. These are the levers. So it might be that voluntary movement and the direction of attention are the whole story. Incidentally, these are frontal cortex operations, and the frontal lobe is the location of the motor cortex. So top-down attention might just be another kind of voluntary movement, albeit one whose object is internal to the brain. Before I close out this analysis of the levers of will, it seems worthwhile to consider the classes of experience upon which we seem to have no leverage at all. The rhythm of the breath carries on whether we attend to it or not, but we have the capacity to breathe at will, too. This isn't the case for control of the heart or the visceral organs. The autonomic nervous system consists in opposing actions of sympathetic and parasympathetic tone. These are not under our control. The emotions seem to arise on their own, and to hold sway for as long as they will, without consulting the will for its opinion. In all of these cases, it is possible, in principle, to use the levers we have to bring about the alteration of these processes. For example, we might go for a brisk run to increase the heart rate. We might sit calmly and meditate to decrease the rate. We could bring to mind a particularly upsetting episode in memory to produce a sense of sadness. Bringing about happiness, at least in my case, is a bigger challenge. Biofeedback training could presumably be used to gain some purchase over these systems. My point here is that there is a difference we can notice directly between the kinds of experiences we have leverage on and those we don't. As a final note, there are perceptions like vision and hearing. As I look in front of me, for better or worse, I cannot summon up visual hallucinations no matter how bored or motivated I am. In the same sense as I cannot telekinetically move a book from its place on the shelf across the room to settle on the dresser, nor can I make it appear to myself in the visual world that I'm doing so. I cannot choose to hear or not to hear either. The best that I have is my attentional resources, which might be made, with proper focus, to turn down the subjective volume on one experiential object in favor of another. Unfortunately, this is a pretty weak force. The mystery we are left with is great. Given what we know about the objective world, it seems inconceivable that the mind can alter matter and energy. But given what we know from our own experience, it seems that much more inconceivable that the mind cannot.